I'd also like to welcome you and invite you to take a Bible and to open it to Acts chapter 7. If you're using one of these Bibles that's provided for you in a pew, you'll find Acts chapter 7 on page 914. Our passage today is quite long, and so I'm going to kind of go into it as quickly as possible. There's also another unique thing about it. It is itself a sermon, and preparing a sermon on a sermon is an interesting task, Um, but this is Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, and we're in a series entitled God's Spirit, Our Advantage for His Advancement, and we're uh, looking at how as the Spirit was poured out, which was the promise of Jesus that when He would leave, He would send the Holy Spirit to come and to fill His followers, and that through them, they would do even greater things than he was able to do because after his resurrection, they would be able to point directly to what Jesus could only refer to in parables and stories, but which they couldn't understand until it had actually happened, until he had died on the cross, was buried and risen again, and then ascended to the Father. And these followers were now proclaiming the resurrection. And in doing so, They got in trouble for it, just like Jesus had people who responded to him with either affection and devotion and followed him. He also had people that didn't like what he was saying and challenged him and wanted to get rid of him. The same was true for his earliest followers, the disciples and the apostles. And where chapter seven starts, this is sort of the setting of the sermon first, is that Stephen was one of these earliest followers and he was proclaiming the message. He actually had a good reputation in the church such that last week he was given responsibility over administering the funds so that the widows could be adequately served for all of their needs. So he had a good reputation by a number of people as being full of the Spirit and he was willing to obey the Spirit as he felt convicted. And sometimes we can think, oh, If we're just willing to do what God wants us to do and we follow him with all of our heart, then of course God's going to make the path easy. And then once we start acting out in faith, uh, everything will be simple and the doors will just seem to magically open up in our way. That's not true of Stephen. In chapter 6, we'd already seen that people were starting to stir up the crowds against him to say certain things. So if your Bible's open, you'll be able to look just a few verses above chapter 7 And if you look at verse 12 of chapter 6, this is the setting for chapter 7. And it says that they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, Stephen, and they seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then verse 1 of 7, And the high priest said, Are these things so? So there he is, he's in a council. So he's arrested, and he's before basically the judge. And the accusations have been made. 
He's speaking against the temple, the temple in Israel. It's hard for us to really grasp how significant it was. Uh, a, a church in today's day and age is not a good equivalent because the temple for first century Jews was not just the center of their spiritual life. It was the center of their political life. It was the center of their family life. Everything most important to them found its expression in the temple. And Jesus had gotten in trouble because he said that the temple, which they all adored and loved, was going to be destroyed. He predicted it 30 years before it happened. His disciples following him were saying, hey, Jesus, who told you that was going to happen, he was telling the truth. And we know he was telling the truth because he rose again from the dead. And we can trust the things that he said. So it was an unpopular message. And for all of them, well, if the temple's destroyed, how are we going to keep doing what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to come to the temple. We're supposed to give sacrifices. We're supposed to, there's all these laws that assume that there's a temple. And if there's no temple, what are we going to do with all the things that Moses taught us? So that's the setting and there's tension and he's standing before these councils, all these people who are in charge and that's the setting. But I think it's fair to say, taking a cue from Hebrews chapter 12, that there's other people listening in on what Stephen is saying. Hebrews 12 says that we all are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And it gives a sense of who those witnesses are just in the chapter before. It listed all these people of faith from the Old Testament. Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and all of these people and says then to us that we should run our race knowing that we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. So I think it's fair if you'll give me a little bit of room to say that part of the setting is also Jesus in heaven saying, hey guys, come here. What? Stephen's about to join us. What? I want you to come here and watch. Stephen is about to die. He is? Yes. He's about to go the way that you went, Abraham, Moses, that you went, Elijah, that you went. He has been asked a question. And when this is all over, they won't want to hear his answer. And they're going to kill him. And that heaven itself, so great a cloud of witnesses, was watching. And you have to imagine, well, Jesus, what are, we, what are we supposed to pray for for Stephen? How are we supposed to, as we watch this, support him? But we want him to be clear, and we want him to be compassionate. We want them to see his boldness, and we want them to hear the message of forgiveness. And so Stephen says, brothers, And fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, 
And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Well, now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver that the sons of Hamer and Shechem. But at this time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born. And he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came to his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, your brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now when forty years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their groaning. I have come down to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside and in their hearts turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol. 
and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joseph while they were dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And he entered into his eternal joy. And there was Abraham, and there was Isaac, and there was Jacob, and there was Joseph, and there was Moses, and there was Joshua, and there was David, and there was Daniel, and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and there was Amos, and there was Joel, but there was Jesus, standing at the right hand of the Father to receive him. That's the sermon that Stephen gave. One of the takeaways for us is that in the previous chapter, Stephen had been set aside to do the work of helping distribute the funds for the widows so that the apostles could focus on prayer and preaching. And yet here, Stephen preaching one of the best sermons we have in the Bible And so he was set aside to his task of helping administer the funds, not because he too couldn't preach, but because not all of us can be doing the same thing. Otherwise, certain things 
don't get done. And so to make sure that everything's getting done, we all have to play a part that is different. And so here's Stephen, able to preach and able to provide for us one of the most amazing summaries of the whole of the Old Testament, even though he himself was not set aside as a preacher. It's an amazing thing. He was just a follower of Jesus. But he knew the stories of the Bible and he knew how they fit together and he knew how Jesus was the fulfillment of them. And so we have this amazing sermon, which I'd rather just say, amen, it's time for the benediction because I can't do a better job than Stephen did. And so I don't want to try to, I just want to summarize some of the points. So that's the setting. And then we have the sermon. And I just want to summarize a few of the points that he makes. And the summary is kind of in there in the title for you, the history of sin and the mystery of grace. You could go through this whole sermon with these two categories. And one of the things that Stephen is driving home to them is they're hearing that Jesus is this person who's come. He's offering this new way of life. He's also pronouncing that judgment has come upon the temple, and so the temple's going to be destroyed. And what Stephen is doing is going back in time and saying, every time God has done something significant, when we read our own history, we have an amazing ability to reject what God is doing. We have an amazing ability to resist and to reject when God intervenes in human history to do things. And so he highlights this lineage, this amazing promise from Abraham who had no sons, and yet God made this promise. Abraham had no land, and yet he was told, you're going to have sons and a land. And then all of a sudden these sons come about. He has a son who has a son who has 12 sons. But the first thing he tells us about it when we get to these 12 patriarchs in verse 9 is, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. So this promise was fulfilled. God was beginning to unfold his plan. But don't you remember how the majority of the brothers were opposed to Joseph? So much so that they sold him into slavery. So God was fulfilling his promise. And yet God's people were rejecting his provision. And then he goes on to describe how eventually they make it to Egypt, but then he goes into Egypt and he says, here's Moses, and there's a Pharaoh in charge who doesn't know the people, and so now there's this Pharaoh who wants to end the people of God, wants to entirely get rid of them by killing all of the male children, and somehow God works it out that Moses is born, and that not only is Moses born, but that Moses is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised up into this house. So God is fulfilling his promise, and yet the people reject his provision. How? Well, when Moses attacked an Egyptian who was abusing an Israelite, there were two Israelites, two Jews, who saw it, and the very next day they challenged him, and they said, well, who made you ruler over us? You're going to take my life like you did the man yesterday? And so Moses flees, just like Joseph was gone into Egypt. Moses has to leave Egypt and go into Midian. And then Moses finally comes back. He does all these amazing miracles. This nation of people who were slaves, <clears throat> who were slaves in Egypt are set free. Amazing signs and wonders are done through him. And then the moment he ascends up into the mountain, the people say, we're not really sure what's going to happen with Moses. 
Aaron, can you build us a calf that we can worship? And they fall back into all of their old patterns, into all of their old ways. At the very same time that God was keeping his promise, they rejected his provision. It's the history of sin that we resist God's activity in our lives. We resist his will for us and again and again choose our own way and our own will. And then he just sums up the whole prophets by saying, name me a prophet your fathers didn't persecute. He doesn't go through them one by one and tell the story of Amos and the story of Ezekiel and the story of Isaiah. He just puts them all together and says, tell me one of them whom God sent to you as part of the fulfillment of his promise that you did not reject. And they don't answer him. Stephen is able to continue his sermon uninterrupted. They just get angrier and angrier because they know that he's telling the truth. This is the history of sin. Some have said that the doctrine of original sin by Christians is the one universally verifiable doctrine that we have. It's it's the, the easiest thing for us to prove. If you come to me and say, prove to me the resurrection, I'm going to have to do some work with you to get there. If you say, prove to me that God exists, I'm going to have to do some work to get there. If you say to me, prove to me that sin exists, that's that's not very hard. I could have picked up a paper on my way into church today and said, here, look. I could have said, you tell me, just tell me what ran through your mind in the last 24 hours. Just play it as if it's a a film screen and just tell me every thought you had in the last 24 hours when you looked at this person or that person or saw this on TV or were watching this on your computer. And most people would say, yeah, there there is something wrong inside of me and there's something wrong outside of me. So how does God bring about rescue and redemption when our pattern is that we regularly resist and reject the provision that he makes that's a dilemma isn't it how do you save someone who rejects every attempt you make to save them well what Stephen unfolds for them in this course is that God is able not only is there this history of sin but he describes for them the mystery of grace that all along the way even though they rejected him God did not fail to bring them to the place that they needed to go. He was able to keep his promise to Abraham, though Abraham had no children and no land. He was able to bring Joseph back from Egypt, even though the brothers sent Joseph into Egypt. He was able to rescue the people out of Israel, even though they were slaves and bound in it. And even though they turned to the golden calf and they worshiped him and they rejected Moses, eventually God was able to still bring Moses down that hill and then raise up Joshua and take him into that land. God was always able, by his grace, to fulfill his promises in spite of their rejection, in spite of their rebellion, and in spite of themselves. And then he also says for them all along the way, as God was doing that, God was promising yet more. He he goes to Moses. This is the Moses who said, verse 37, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. A prophet who would do what Moses did. If you look up in verse 35, this this amazing description of Moses is so true of Jesus himself. 
that Moses was sent as both a ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so Jesus comes as a ruler and redeemer, our Lord and our Savior, to bring us out of this. And so God is able to do it in spite of our rejection, in spite of our rebellion. He is able by his grace, because if if it's because of our obedience, if it's because of our actions, nothing happens. We reject it at every turn. But if it's by his grace, which is a mystery, then the the history continues to unfold in spite of all of our attempts to keep it from happening. But yet still in an even deeper truth, as he describes to them who Jesus is, the righteous one who's been betrayed and murdered, it's not only that God is able to bring about salvation in spite of their rejection, but that God has written it into the story that he will bring about salvation through their rejection, through their disobedience, through their sin. And that's the mystery of the cross. That at the very same time that we were expressing our sin in all of its ugliness, in all of its fullness, in sending Christ to the cross, that was the very means by which Christ forgives us of all of our sins and all of our rejections and all of our brokenness. That the righteous one who has gone there, that when he looks at these group of people and says, they keep rejecting everything I'm doing in an amazing way, writes the story so that it is actually when he sends his son and they reject him that he accomplishes and brings about the salvation that they so desperately need. And he becomes their Lord and Savior in spite of the fact that he was betrayed and murdered. And that's the mystery of grace. As he describes for them the history of their sin, he's also pointing them to the mystery of grace, which is why when they hear all this, they become increasingly angry, but he becomes increasingly loving. I mean, how does he get at the end of this? to the place where he can look at them and say, Father, please forgive them. How can he get to the place where he's not mad at them even though they're taking his life? Because Stephen puts himself right in this story. He knows he's one of the sinners. He knows that he's one of the people that would otherwise reject God every time God sought to keep one of his promises. And it's only by his grace through his son that Stephen has any hope. And so now, in the moment where he's breathing his last breath, he reflects the son so amazingly that just as Jesus was able on the cross to say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, Stephen's able to say the same thing. So he's not speaking this message out of anger towards them. He's not telling them all the dirty laundry of the family history of Israel because he wants to make them mad. He's highlighting the history of their sins so that they could come to the conclusion of how much they need the grace and mercy of God just like he did. And so that's the summary of the message and then there's the actual stoning. When the message is done, The stoning happens. And we don't quite see it in its fullness here. You have to know how the rest of the book of Acts goes to get this. 
But there is something so amazing in verse 58 when it says that these people, so full of anger, they cry out the loud voice, verse 37, they stop their ears, they rush together, and then verse, verse 58, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. This young man who is seeing this happen, who's hearing this summary of the Old Testament by Stephen, who's seeing the anger then carried out on Stephen, and then seeing the compassion and the love that Stephen has for those who are angry at him. He's just standing there collecting all the coats so that they can do their work. I mean, there's a guy saying, I need to swing a little bit harder. I need to throw this stone a little bit faster. Can you hold my coat so that I have the full range of motion that I need? And there's Saul, that's what he's doing. He's the young guy saying, I'll hold your coats while you do this. And eventually, though he himself is filled with sin, This is the beginning of the working of God's grace in his own heart and his own life where he eventually becomes a Christian and he becomes a Christian whose passion takes him all throughout the known world and he carries on the message with the same method as Stephen after Stephen dies. What an amazing God who can write that into the story. That he could make it so that in the cross, the very people who were bringing about this sin on his son, that that would be the very way in which God would save them. And now here with Saul, one of Jesus' followers, he could make it such that the very anger that people are expressing, the very attitude of their own hearts to say, we have to put an end to this, we have to stop this, We, we have to do it so much that we'll take his life. There is someone watching who God is beginning a miracle of grace in his own mind and heart to say, not only by killing Stephen will you not stop this, but because you kill him, this thing will grow in ways in which you can never stop. What an amazing God. What a powerful God. What a God worth worshiping and following, worth preaching about and even suffering and dying for. That's what Stephen was willing to do. He understood what was at stake, and he spoke the message. Not because Stephen was some person of significant courage, not even because he had some great faith, but because that's how he understood God. That's how great God was in his mind and in his heart. And so the challenge for us as we look at this sermon is to ask ourselves, do we realize that our own history of sin, that we're as lost as these people were, that we're just as in need, that a ruler and a redeemer would be sent, and that by his very rejection we could be forgiven, that all of our sins could be forgiven, and then we could walk in obedience to him in such a way that God could write our stories so that when we have clarity and compassion in our message when we speak with boldness and forgiveness the truth of the gospel that somebody right now who has no interest in Christ no desire to follow is actually totally opposed to him that he or she 
could one day come into the family, could one day be surprised by God's grace, and that they could actually pick up the mantle and take on the message in ways that you or I never could. If we believe God can do that, then we'll do our part to speak about him and to proclaim his message, whatever the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you as we see it exhibited in the example of Stephen, who when everything was on the line, he did not cower, he did not flinch. When by all human standards, he could have just run or been silent. He was willing to speak about you and how great and awesome you are. And so, Father, we pray that through your spirit, you would speak to us by his sermon and by his example to really consider, Father, some of us are here and it's so surprising to see and hear about someone who is willing to die for something. But we pray, Father, that we would be willing to die for something rather than to live for nothing. And so we pray that you, through your spirit, would reveal yourself to each and every one of us. You alone can rescue. You alone can save. And so you alone are worthy of our complete devotion and affection and obedience. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.